and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. Uh, This morning, Hebrews chapter 7, we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 19. And these verses, uh, we're titling the message, A Better Hope. But there's really three big phrases that you'll find in this set of verses. The first one has to do with an indestructible life. Uh, Then we see this phrase, better hope, and we also see how we draw near to God. So if you're you're somebody that likes to make notes in your Bibles, those are probably three places that you would make a little underline. The better hope, an indestructible life, and drawing near. Those are really important things that we're going to talk about as far as what this is. Uh, give you a quick reminder of what we're doing within the book of Hebrews. So the, the letter was written by, we're not sure who, to a group of Jewish Christians in the first century before 70 AD, before the fall of the temple in Jerusalem. This is probably written in the early to mid 60s as a time of persecution is happening uh, on Christians. It's not the heavy persecution yet under Nero, but it's growing towards that. And so what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's encouraging these Jewish Christians not to fall back into what's culturally acceptable. Judaism was a legal um, uh, religion within the Roman Empire at this point in time. Christianity was becoming illegal. And so what was happening is these people are following Jesus as the Messiah, but there's pressure on them to no longer practice Christianity, but to go back to Judaism. And so what he does is he tells them time and again how Christ in Christianity is better than the old covenant, than the old relationship that we had with God. So he talks about how, how Jesus is better than the prophets. He talks about how Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. And what we're looking at here in this discourse is he's talking about how Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood. So the Old Testament priesthood and the sacrificial system that exists, he's showing them how Jesus is a better priest than the priest that they could go back to in Judaism. And so the the better hope that's being introduced is exactly that. And I'm going to explain why following Jesus is a better hope than going back to a system of man-made rules. But as you think about this, what are, what are some of the things that you have high levels of anticipation for? So for you as a person in your life right now, what is, what is something that you have a high level of anticipation for? Um, maybe there's something going on at your job. Maybe there's something going on in, in a relationship, in your marriage. Maybe there's a parenting situation. Maybe, uh, maybe you're just looking forward to a family vacation. Maybe... Um, you know that raise is coming. Uh, maybe uh, you're, you're looking for summer's hot. You're ready for some cold weather. Um, you know, I, what, are you, what are you sort of looking forward to? What do you have anticipation for? And then, you know, what does that anticipation depend upon? Um, is, is it realistic, first of all? And then what does it depend upon? Does it depend upon, you know, you just need some more money, you could make it happen? If we get that more, little bit more money, we could do this, that, the other thing. If I had a little bit more time to devote to this, I could be better at it. If I, if I were maybe had a little bit better ability at this, I could do it better. You know, so what, is, what do you have a high levels of anticipation for? Is it realistic and what does it depend upon? And those are all very temporary things that I just mentioned. And it's not that the temporary doesn't matter, but we want to view what we're going through right now in light of the ultimate anticipation that we have in our relationship with God. 
Um, and so uh, that's what I want to show you in this passage is how, how, do we, how do we view life in terms of what Christ has done for us? Not just the, the day-to-day, the temporary, but uh, all of our lives. So follow along with me in these verses in Hebrews chapter 7. He says, Now if perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to appear? Said to be according to the order of Melchizedek and not according to the order of Aaron. So that's the first kind of thing that he's talking about, is that in the Old Testament system, through the Levitical priesthood, the tribe of Levi, uh, there the priests came down through a hereditary lineage and they had the, the, the law practices that were given to them by God. You read through the book of Leviticus, it can be a little bit confusing at time, but there's all these different sacrifices that could be offered. And what you can do with the book of Leviticus, if you'll, if you'll do it, is you'll see that uh, all of those sacrifices pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice. You can always find Christ in those sacrifices. But what he's saying here is that a better order, um, a new order has come about through the order of Melchizedek, and it's needed. It's a change that's needed. For when there is a change, that's one thing put in place of another, a change of priesthood, there must also be a change of law as well. For one of these things are spoken about belong to a different tribe. No one from it has served at the altar. Now it is evident that the Lord came from Judah, Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, and Moses said nothing about that tribe concerning priests. So he's drawing out here that in the old covenant, and the law that God gave to the Jewish people, there were 12 tribes, and one of them were set aside through heritage, through lineage to be the priesthood. The other 11 tribes, they were not a part of the priesthood, um, and their job was actually to support the priesthood so that they could carry out the, the religious and priestly duties that they did. But what he's saying here is that Jesus didn't come from that. He didn't come from the line of Levi. He's not from the line of Aaron. He's from a different tribe. He comes from the tribe of Judah. Now, the, G- the Jewish mind would immediately associate the tribe of Judah with kings. That's where the kings came from. They would associate it with warriors. That's what they would think of when they thought of the tribe of Judah. Uh, so he's drawing out here that there's a new and different way um, that God is going to deal with sin. So there's a change of priesthood and of law, a new and superior basis for dealing with sin and sacrifice. That's what he's talking about. The old way of dealing with sin was the sacrifices that the Jewish priests from the Levitical line, the the way that they would offer sacrifices. That's how sin was covered over. That's how atonement was made with God. We know that that sacrificial system was recurring. It had to happen again and again and again, um, both annually and um, on a weekly basis. Those types of things were taking place so that people could deal with their sin, and there were different types of sacrifices for different offenses. Um, And then there were sacrifices that were made just as an offering to God. So he's saying that that was there, but a new and superior basis for dealing with sin and sacrifice has come about. And I think it's important to recognize it's not a replacement for the definition of sin, but how to be saved from it. Uh, Sin, in God's eyes, his morality and his understanding of what's right and wrong, it it does not change. God is not, he's not one, at one point in time based upon your upbringing and your culture. Here's your standards and here's a different set of standards for somebody else. God's standards are true and universal. Okay, And, and so it's not a replacement for the definition of sin, but how to be saved from it. 
And so the old way to be saved from sin was you need to go to another person. That person offers a sacrifice on your behalf so that you can have your sin covered and be at one with God again. The, the new way that we deal with sin is the gospel. It's that it's no longer about the, those those several different sacrifices that had to happen, but it's a one-time sacrifice, and the priest doesn't uh, sacrifice an animal on your behalf. He actually gives himself, and that's what Christ did. He gave himself on our behalf so that our sin wouldn't just be covered over, but it would be annulled. It would be put away. It would be done away with and paid in full, and there would no longer be any conversation with God about it. So it's a one-time sacrifice that brings peace once and for all. And so this change of priesthood and a change change of law, a new and superior way for dealing with sin and sacrifice. This is important. Um, Each person in this room has some belief about how sin is dealt with. I don't know exactly what yours is, but everybody in here has some understanding of what sin is, what is wrong, and then how do we deal with the wrong. And what the scriptures are making very clear to us time and again is that the right way to deal with sin is not through your own effort and your own striving, but it's done by what Jesus Christ has done for you. And this is ultimately what it's about, right? This is, this is ultimately, why would you go back to a man-made rules-based system uh, that, instead of going to uh, Jesus? But everybody in here has a different belief on that. Um, our culture is going to tell you that maybe sin doesn't matter. Maybe sin is kind of in up, up to you. Uh, maybe it changes based upon your upbringing and where you live. It's not universal. It's not timeless. Um, maybe they would tell you that the way to deal with sin is through your own self-effort. You can get into religious groups that are going to tell you you need to perform these religious activities in order to have your sin dealt with. So it's about what you do for God rather than what God does for you. Um, You could look at our culture and they would maybe tell you that that God's kind of out of the picture. And as long as you're a good person, uh, as long as you're behaving well and treating others in a decent manner, you're, you're going to be fine. The scriptures tell us that we have a different need that we need someone to sacrifice for our sin. The Old Testament saw that happen through animal sacrifice on our behalf. All of that was pointing forward to, it was a shadow of what Christ would do for us ultimately on the cross. And so this new and superior basis for dealing with sin has come about. He says, and this becomes clearer, um, and that word clearer means beyond the regular number. The idea here is that there are so many witnesses that would attest to the same thing. It's very clear that another, a different kind of priest like Melchizedek has appeared. Now, we talked about Melchizedek last week. It's Genesis chapter 14, and you have the story of Abram, and his nephew Lot is taken captive in a rebellion, and Abram grabs his 300 warriors, and they go and they rescue. Lot and his family. And then uh, he's approached by two different kings. He's approached by a king in the, whose name is Melchizedek, which means righteousness. And he is the prince of Salem, which is peace, the king of peace. And he's also a priest of the most high God. And he shows up and he offers Abraham a blessing. Abraham takes the blessing and he responds by giving a gift to God through Melchizedek. Okay. And so that's kind of the process. The other king that approaches uh, Abraham, 
Abram is the king of Sodom, and he's the king of destruction and desolation. He's known for idolatry and taking advantage of people. And he tries to make a deal with Abraham. Abraham rejects the deal and uh, says that he wouldn't take anything from the king of destruction, but he wants everything to come from the king of righteousness. And so it becomes clearer, there's, there's many witnesses to this, that there's a different kind of priest. Uh, that word in the, there's two different ways you could say another in the Greek. One is um, alos, and that means I want another one of the same kind. So if I was writing with a pencil and the pencil broke, I, I could say, give me another, give me an alos. I want another one of the same kind. You'd hand me a pencil and I'd keep writing. I could also say, give me a, a heteros, give me one of a different kind. So I don't want a pencil anymore. Um, I want to pin. Give me one of a different kind. And that's the word that's used here. Another of a different kind, not like the Levitical priesthood, but like that of Melchizedek, has shown up. This king of righteousness, king of peace, who is a priest of the most high God, who did not become a priest based upon legal regulation or physical descent, but based upon the power, his strength and capability of an indestructible and endless and perpetual life. So, uh, He's, what he's saying here is that the priest that you could go to, say you're a Jewish person in 64 AD, and you could make your way to Jerusalem, and the temple is still standing, and you could go to that Levitical priest, and you could say, here's, a, here's an offering that I want you to sacrifice on my behalf so that my sin could be covered. That guy's there because of the legal regulations of the Old Testament law, and because he was born into the tribe of Levi. Um, but he's going to die, Right? That priest, is he's going to die, and he's going to get replaced by a different priest, and he's going to die, and he's going to get replaced by a different priest, except for what happens is in 70 AD, and God didn't have to let this happen, but in 70 AD, the Romans come, and they destroy the temple, and they destroy Jerusalem, and none of these sacrifices have been offered since 70 AD, at least not according to the way that the Levitical law would ask them to be offered. And so there hasn't been any of these sacrifices, and so the power and strength of that old priesthood, it doesn't even exist anymore. And not only did it, does it not exist anymore, but even when it did, it couldn't make anyone perfect. It couldn't totally deal with sin. It could sweep it under the rug. It could cover it, but it could not completely deal with it. Now, Romans tells us that in God's forbearance, in other words, he, he looked at those sacrifices and he said, that'll work because they point to my son Jesus. I'll accept those sacrifices as dealing with sin, but not because of the, those sacrifices, but because they point to Jesus' sacrifice later on. And so even those sacrifices in the old, they were taken by God as a way to point to Jesus. And so they were acceptable to him, but ultimately they did not deal with sin. And so we have the strength of an indestructible life. Here's the thing about Jesus is he, he did die. He did die on that cross, but he did not stay dead. So you could go to a priest in, in 63, 64, or before that, AD, and you could offer this sacrifice, but that guy is going to lose his life. So even if he offered his own life on your behalf, he's going to stay dead. But Jesus offers his own life on our behalf, and he lives. He gives his life, and then he defeats sin and death. And this is important because it proves that he is God. It proves that he is the Messiah. But it also proves that he has the power to give you life. See, those old sacrifices, they could cover sin, but they could not give you life. The, the new sacrifice, the better and superior sacrifice given by Christ, not only deals with sin once and for all, but through his resurrection, he gives life. So it's superior, it's better. Why would you go back to this old thing? 
why would you go back to believing that your works, be they religious or irreligious, are going to save you? And that's what most people believe. The vast majority of people walking around planet Earth right now believe that their works, either religious, and I do this in order to be right with God, or irreligious, I don't need him, but I'm good without him, they believe that their works are going to save them. But we know that that doesn't work, that we're saved through Christ's sacrifice on our behalf and his endless perpetual life. He quotes Psalm 110 here, and he says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, Psalm 110 is one of the most, it is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Uh, But the point here before we read Psalm 110 together is the power of an indestructible life. Um, There's irreplaceable permanence, peace, stability, and completion. Um, In any works-based system, if you mess up, you don't get it right, you're in trouble. You've got to go through another group of works in order to be right with God again. So you have a bad week. You have a bad day. Maybe you have a bad decade. And the guilt is weighing on you, and you've got to go back, and now you've got to pay for all of this with your own works. You've got to work it off. And that's what religious-based systems, and it's frankly what humanism They would call themselves secular humanists and that we have no need for God. But if you're messing up, you've got to do something to make it right. And it's up to you. And it's up to your power. Uh, But this this is to give you peace that you're right with God even if you have a horrible day, a horrible week, or a horrible decade. You're right with God because you didn't get saved by what you did in the first place. You got saved by what Christ did on your behalf. Now, is that permission to sin? No. That isn't permission. No one should look at that and go, well, if, if I can sin and still be right, you know, let's just give it a go. That's not the point. Uh, the point is that you should feel at peace with God. You should feel stability. You should know that he has completed the work that is necessary to save you. And from that place of security, we work to honor him, not to receive his honor, right? Um, the, the Sound of Freedom is a really interesting movie. You guys should go see it. Interesting might not be the right word. It made me angry. It made me sad. Um, it, it did multiple things to, be, to me. But I watched an interview with uh, the guy who did that in real life. And he said that one of his motivating factors to go and do this, was his wife said, if you don't do this, you'll put my salvation in jeopardy. I don't want you to put my salvation in jeopardy by you not doing uh, this good work. So he did the right thing, but the motivation, the motivation's way off. I'm not gonna do what I do because I'm afraid I'm gonna lose my salvation. I'm going to do what I do because I am saved. I'm at peace. I am God's child. His spirit does live in me. And so I'm not working to make sure I keep my salvation. I'm working in order to honor the one who's given me salvation. I want to honor him. Not hope and wish and maybe he'll save me if I live up to his standards. 
But that's what false religion does. It puts you under a, a, a burden of guilt that says you may or may not have peace and stability with God, and the only way for you to be sure is to work really hard at it. That's not the gospel. And the gospel says that we have peace with God based upon Jesus' indestructible life. And he quotes Psalm 110, and the reason he does that is to show us who Jesus is. Now this Psalm 110, David writes it, but what you have to imagine with David, he says, this is the declaration of the Lord, Yahweh, to my Lord, Adonai. So he's saying, I overheard a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. This is how it went. That's what Psalm 110 is. Um, This is the declaration of Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, to my Lord, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's what Psalm 110 is. And so he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, rule rule over your surrounding enemies. Your people will volunteer on the day of battle in holy splendor, From the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youth belongs to you. And so the first part of Psalm 110 is he's saying that the Messiah would be a king, and he's going to rule over everybody. He's going to be at the right hand of God, and his scepter, which is a a symbol of rulership, is going to extend from God's place in Zion. He's going to rule over his enemies, and his people will volunteer to fight for him, and his holy splendor will be from the beginning until the end. The Jewish mind would say, no problem. The Messiah is a king. Then he says in verse four, the Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever according to the pattern of Melchizedek. Now this was a mind bender for the Jewish reader. The Messiah is going to be a priest. I'm not sure I saw that one coming. In fact, we're not even sure how to reconcile it because priests come from the tribe of Levi, and kings come from the tribe of Judah. What's God doing? He's doing something new. He's doing something different. This is prophecy, that when the Messiah came, he would be a king from the line of Judah, and he would be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And Jesus has fulfilled this prophecy. He is fulfilling it right now. He's fulfilling it today. So, the Messiah is a king, he's a priest. And then the last bit here, verse five, the Lord is at your right hand. He will crush the kings on the day of his anger. He will judge the nations, heaping up corpses. He will crush leaders over the entire world. He will drink from the brook by the road. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And so the last bit about the Messiah is he will be a warrior. Uh, When we went through the book of Revelation, this is really clear. When Jesus shows up at his second coming, it will be as a warrior. And so for the Jewish person, this was just so, hold on. Um, He's going to be a king, a warrior. Thumbs up, got it. David was like that. Saul was like that. Got no problem with that. They, They wish that they had more kings like it. But this priest part, it was actually illegal within the Jewish law for a king to act as a priest. And so something new has to take place. And so he says in verse 18, so the previous command is annulled. That means to set aside or the ending of a contract. The other place that this word is used in the New Testament is only one other time. It's in the book of Hebrews chapter 9. And it says that Jesus has annulled sin. He has set it aside, he has destroyed it, and it is, it is no longer. 
And so the same thing is being said here. The previous command, the old covenant, is annulled. It's set aside. Its contract has come to an end. Why? Because it was weak, literally sick, and unprofitable or harmful. What happened to people under the old covenant was not them finding righteousness. They found condemnation. And this is Paul's argument in the book of Romans, that when you put yourself under a system of law, it does not make you righteous. It condemns you. Because you can't live up to its demands. And so I guess one of the things you might ask yourself, do I even want to live up to its demands? You know, do I look at God and say, he's right, his ways are right, and I want to live right in his eyes? Do you want to do that? That's an important answer. A lot of people would say no. Do you, do you believe God is right? Do you believe his ways are right? And do you want to live right in his eyes? Well, he says that the old way that we used to try that has been annulled. It's been done away with because it was weak and it was sick. It became unprofitable. And if you go back and you look at the way that the priesthood operated in Jesus' time, he had the most difficult things to say to that group of people because they had taken the law and thought they could turn it into a means of their own righteousness rather than saying, God, how much we need you. Right? They become puffed up with pride. Well, I'm good at this law, and I'm good at this law, and I'm good at that law, and because of it, God owes me. Instead of saying, boy, I fail daily, and I need help. That's the point of the law, is to see that I feel daily, fail daily, and I need help. The law perfected nothing, he says in verse 19. The law made nothing complete. It didn't make me complete. It can't make you complete. I don't care what group of rules you follow, even if they're the best ones from the scriptures. If you try to do them in your own ability, you will find yourself weak and harmful. You'll find yourself sick and in need because the law and your ability to keep it cannot save you. We need somebody else, but a better hope a higher in rank hope or expectation is introduced. And here's what the higher expectation is. It's not on you. The higher expectation isn't in you. It isn't in humanity. It isn't in me. It isn't in anything that any of us can do. The higher expectation is in what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so you are condemned if you think religious behavior will save you. You are condemned if you think that following the ways of secular humanism in our society make you right. You're condemned. Because you are weak and sick and unprofitable and so am I until I'm transformed by this higher and better expectation in Jesus Christ through which we draw near to God. How do you draw near to God? What is the fundamental approach that you have towards God? Is it, look what I did for you, God. Look what I've accomplished for you. Uh, or, or, I don't even want to approach him. I'm just fine without him. Or is it, boy, I need you. I'm so thankful for what you've done for me. 
I'm so grateful for you sending your son to, though I was an enemy and, and, and fighting against you, you sent your son to die as a rebel on my behalf so that my sin could be not just washed or covered over, but washed away, annulled, done away with completely so that I have right standing with God, not based upon what I've done, but based upon his indestructible life, which conquered the death and grave. And so the law of works is set aside for a law of grace. The human, weak and sick, is replaced by the divine, mighty, and complete. And if you look at what our world around us is saying, it's consistently saying, look what we can do. It's the Tower of Babel over and over and over again. Let's build a tower and a great name for ourselves. Look what we can accomplish. The human is weak and sick, and it must be replaced by the divine, the mighty, and complete. I'm going to make it personal. I have to die and be born again. The old me must be put to death with Jesus Christ on the cross and be raised again, born again, through what he has done for me. Until that takes place, I got nothing. Until that takes place, you have nothing. And so he's saying to a group of Christians, why would you go back to nothing when you have everything? Why would you go back to religious practices that are based upon what you can do when you have Christ's work on your behalf? Maybe religious works aren't your thing. Why would you turn to a worldly answer when you have God on your behalf? Why would you try and find life in drugs? Why would you try and find life in, in alcohol? Why would you try and find life in money? Why would you try and find life in sex? Why would you try and find life in, in competition, in work, in sport? Why would you try and find life in your material possessions? Why would you try and find, why would you do it? And I think the only reason you do it is because your anticipations aren't biblical. Your hopes are not biblical. Your hopes don't find their root in Scripture. See, because your hope has to have a legitimate answer for sin. And I'm telling you right now, most people don't even want to answer the problem of sin. They just want to keep doing it. So one of the first things that has to happen in you is you have to say, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be, God, I want to stop ignoring your law and harming the people around me. I don't want to do this anymore. I need a legitimate answer for sin. It's not what I can do. It's what you can do for me and through me. And then you want, I want something that's timeless, true, and indestructible. Not what's popular within my culture. Not what's happening on social media. Not what a political party says. I want my answers to be timeless, true, and indestructible. So far as I can tell, 
There's only one who ever died and got back up. So far as I can tell, there's, there's only one that proved himself indestructible. Are you aware of another occasion in all of the history of the world that someone proved themselves indestructible to death and sin? I'm not. It's because it doesn't exist. But Jesus Christ has proved himself to be timeless, true, and indestructible. So I want to go to him. I want my hope to be based upon him. I want to depend on his power, his person, and his work. What do you want to do? And I think ultimately that's what <laughs> the book of Hebrews makes you answer over and over again. What do you want to do with Jesus? Do you want to tell him that he owes you because you worked hard? Do you want to tell him he's not worth listening to and do what everybody else is doing? Or do you want to see him as greater and better and worthy and give your life to him? Heavenly Father, this morning, will you, uh, will you lead each of us to give our lives to you? Perhaps for the first time, God, will someone turn away from their own ways, their own ability, and what the world is saying to them, and will they turn to you, the timeless, indestructible one, and admit their need? And admitting their need, God, will they, will they thank you for meeting it? Will they trust you that your son Jesus' death on the cross has met our need to, to crush sin and wash it away? That his resurrection from the dead proved himself to be God, proved himself to be Messiah, proved himself to be capable of giving us new life. And God, I pray for this person this morning that they would say, Father, thank you that through your son Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, I am forgiven and born again. And God, for those who have already made that decision, will you remind us that we're born again? That we're not who we used to be? That we're not defined by what we believe to be our shortcomings, but we're defined by power, the power of an indestructible life. My hope is not built upon what I can do, but it's built upon who you are and what you're doing in me. God, give us a sense of peace and security knowing that you've saved us. And from that place of peace and security, give us a desire to, to honor you with our lives. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.